Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. And we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening of our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see offspring. He will prolong days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself for the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors. Father, we lift up prayer asking that you will bless the teaching of your word this morning to each of our hearts. Father, your word that does not come back to you empty, we pray that it would come back full today in our reaction, our response, our answer to what you have done, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we leave this time and entrust it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 53 is at the very heart of the book of Consolations. Isaiah 40 through 66 could not be called the book of Consolations without Isaiah 53. There is no comfort without the sorrow of this chapter. Bypass it, or worse, remove it entirely, and the comfort cannot flow where it needs to go. This is, to my mind, the most critical chapter in the entire Hebrew Scriptures. This is the passage. It is the hinge point. It really is the substance of all Christian faith. We land on it here. You don't have to wait to get to the New Testament to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ preached and preached clearly and plainly and truly for all people to be saved. Which is good news if you happen to be talking to a Jewish friend. You don't have to start in the New Testament. You still start with Jesus, but you start with Jesus in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, specifically Isaiah 53. This is the place to go. But you'll wonder in reading through this passage, how did such a vital organ become so controversial? As it has in Judaism. As it has among the Jewish people. I hope you brought your thinking caps today because, again, I need to begin with a little theological discussion. One of the primary arguments against Isaiah 53 as a prophecy, not only of the Messiah, but of Jesus himself, is this. And this is what many Jewish people have asked over the years. How can God become humiliated man? Buxfazen writes, The Jewish controversialists contrasted the infinite majesty and omnipotence of the eternal God with the physical limitations of Jesus while he was on the earth in the form of a frail human being. Looking at the glory of God and the frailty of Jesus, and they couldn't connect the two. So, first of all, in answering the question, how can God be the humiliated man, we need to realize when that question is even asked, 
that we are truly seeking to contain God within the limits of human understanding. Anytime you ask the question, how can God, you are putting limitations on what God can do. In your own life, and perhaps you've asked that question, how can God allow this to happen? How can God pull me out of this mess? How can God do this or that or the other? Every time we ask the question, how can God, we're saying, God, there's only so much I believe you're up to. Uh, There's only so much you can really do. How can God? So the question itself is flawed, even as we ask it. Well, so Rick, you're saying we can't question God? No, I'm just saying ask the right questions. Because how can God is the wrong question. Questions, by the way, tend to reveal more of the person who asks than the one they are asked about. Our questions tend to reveal where we're coming from. And the question, how can God be the humiliated man of Isaiah 53, represents a basic misunderstanding of the Incarnation. The Incarnation, yes, God become man. To ask how can God do it, misunderstands it entirely. I have to read this. It's a passage we read many, many times. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And it reads, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, the morphe of God in the Greek, the very nature, the very character, the essence of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He emptied himself, which literally means to divest oneself of position. He had the position, he stepped back from it. The King James Version, I love the phrase, uses, he made himself of no reputation. Of no reputation. That is the reputation of Jesus Christ. That he made himself of no reputation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Christ at the Center wrote the the following. He said, Humiliation does not signify that the Incarnate One is more man and less God. That there is thus a shrinking of the state of God. And exaltation does not signify that He is now more God and less man. And this is what we've got to understand. In humiliation and in exaltation, Jesus remains holy man and holy God. He was not less God as a human, nor is He less human as God. But truly is the fullness of both. And so Bonhoeffer writes, the question is no longer how can God be the humiliated man, but who is the humiliated God-man? That's the question to ask. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Who is always the right question when it comes to God. It's always the right question when talking about Jesus. Who is He? If you've been a long-term believer, it's the right question to ask. Who is Jesus? Because that question betrays the heart. The heart that wants to know Him better. As opposed to question His ability or His motives. Who is He? Who is this humiliated God-man? That was the Ethiopian's question. Remember from last week? The Ethiopian eunuch riding along was reading through Isaiah 53. Didn't understand it. Was trying to figure out who this man was. And Philip, the apostle, comes along, sent by the Holy Spirit, runs up to the chariot. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I understand if no one explains it to me? And he asks about Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. Who is this? Remember Philip's answer. Acts chapter 8, verse 35. Beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Who is he? Who is the humiliated God-man? We're back in the recording studio, our worship team, and putting together a new CD, and I'm excited about that. But we're in the studio Monday night. 
And our recording engineer, same gentleman we used last time, his name is David. He has some sensibility, calls himself a spiritual agnostic. Um, believes in a, a greater force, does believe the universe was created, not really sure how. He, he's interested in the divine, but, but more in a, a kind of a, a new age approach. But I love having conversation with him because he's so different than I am in terms of philosophy and theology and understanding. And yet he's so similar to me in terms of personality and, and characteristics. And he's also tall and skinny, so I like that too. But, <laughs> but he was listening to the playback of one of our songs that we sing here at the bridge, The Almighty One. And he heard this line, I can't wrap my finite mind around infinity, but to know him is all I desire. And we sing that from time to time in the song. And David heard that and he looks at me and he goes, there's another conundrum. If God is all-powerful, why couldn't He make Himself more knowable to man? Why does He give a finite mind to man if He is infinite and in our finite mind we can't understand Him? It's a conundrum. David loves to point out the conundrums of the Bible and the difficulties of faith. If God is all-powerful, why couldn't He make Himself knowable to man? And I said, David, He did. And His name is Jesus. I said, that's the whole point of Jesus coming to earth. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. How did God make Himself knowable? Through the person of Jesus. And I submit to you, He is absolutely knowable through the person of Jesus Christ. Does that mean we're going to understand everything there is to understand about God? No, I don't believe we ever will all through eternity. Because He is Almighty, Eternal God. But we see Him and we know Him and we draw near to Him personally and intimately through Jesus. Now this fourth servant song is evenly divided into five phases of three verses each. We looked at the first three phases last week, the consideration phase, chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. We looked at the confession phase, Chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. Now in the consideration phase, the song opens up. Consider my servant. Behold my servant, he says. Think about him. I'm going to begin to describe him now more richly and more fully than in any of the previous servant songs. Consider him, the consideration phase. And you hit chapter 53, verses 1 through 3, the confession phase where the people of Israel confess to misunderstanding who he was. We didn't know. He came up in the midst of a dry land at a time where we just we were dry ourselves spiritually. We didn't understand. We didn't get it. He, he was he was so average, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. The confession stage or phase number three. We entered into the contraction phase. Verses 4 through 6, where we begin to see this, this God-man, this servant of the Lord, contracting our sin and our pains on himself. Taking it all on himself. And we read 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And we just got into the contraction phase last week before we had to stop. So we're going to pick up immediately where we left off. Considering who is this? Who is the humiliated God-man? Who is He truly? Understanding this, we continue in the contraction phase. Verse 4, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Remember from last week, griefs is literally afflictions or sicknesses, diseases. Our griefs He bore. Our sorrows, that is, our emotional or physical or spiritual pains, literally our pain, He took these Himself. He carried these. Physically and literally speaking, verse 4 was fulfilled in the parched land of the early 30s A.D. Verse 4 here, literally fulfilled in Jesus. Surely our sickness He Himself bore and our pains He carried. How do you know that? Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. tells us, When evening came, they brought to Him many who were demon-possessed. And He cast out the spirits with a word, and He healed all who were ill. And this was to fulfill, Matthew tells us. What was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, He Himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. 
Matthew, in writing his gospel and in considering what Jesus did, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is you can almost see Matthew writing and thinking back to, the, to that day on the hillside and all the people coming to him. There actually, it would have been in Capernaum. Because it was just in Peter's mother-in-law's house. If you go to Capernaum today, you can see where they think Peter's house was. There's a wonderful um, kind of a spaceship that sits above it. It's this horrendous, monstrous thing. But, but the rest of Capernaum is a really cool place to be. And there in Capernaum, he comes out after healing Peter's mother-in-law, and he just starts healing people right and left. And Matthew's thinking about this writing and saying, that's what Isaiah was talking about. That's exactly what he said would happen. And in Jesus' first coming day, he drew an indelible line from himself to Isaiah 53, physically healing people. Why did Jesus do all the healing? He didn't come to the world to heal people of their physical diseases, but but to save the lost. That was the primary purpose. He came to die that we might live. Why all the healing? And and I've thought in the past, well, He was just so compassionate He couldn't help it. No, there's more to it. Jesus healed to prove who He was. And the healing He did draws us back to the prophecies of the Hebrew Scriptures and we can see in the healing hands of this servant of God, we see the Messiah of Isaiah 53. The healings of Jesus were a picture in type of the spiritual healing that He would bring as He bore our sin disease on the cross. I want you to note that word bore in verse 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bore. It's an interesting word in the Hebrew. Bore or to bear is the word nasah. And in Torah law, this word was used to indicate the weight or the heaviness of sin. He bore this. He bore our diseases. He carried them The indication in the word is they were a heavy, burdensome thing. And our sin is. And in the Hebrew law, Leviticus 5.17 tells us, If a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty. And he shall bear his punishment. Nasah. You'll bear it. It becomes a weight for you. Why is it in the world when people have not given their life to Jesus? Why does life get heavier as you go? Why is it that it just seems to not get better? Why does it seem that there's a burden or a weight? It's the weight of sin. And it gets heavier and heavier. We get used to it to a degree, I guess, like carrying water up a hill after a while. It's there, but it's just its such a weight. Even if you don't know you've sinned, and this is a catch here, even if you don't know you've sinned, guilty, That was the one that that just laid me out as a teenager. I'm like, serious? Even if I don't know? Because I was starting to think that, you know, I'm 16, 17 years old, I'm a pretty good guy here. And I was trying to understand, why do I really need grace? I mean, I know I stole the cookie as a kid, and I know there were things that... But I'm I'm pretty good now. I'm, I'm not... I can't even really think of the last bad thing that I did... And I don't remember the pastor, but he made a statement about even the sins that you don't know that you committed, you're, you're guilty of them. I'm like, how is that fair? Well, it's absolutely fair on an eternal scale. On a godly scale, who sees absolute perfection and justice. And there's plenty of stuff that we all have done we still don't even know we've done. People you have hurt, and you don't even know you've hurt them. I found out things like that. You know, years later, someone comes up and says, you know, that thing you said to me really hurt. What was that? Yeah, about five years ago in Starbucks when you were walking by, you didn't even acknowledge me. <laughs> okay. Well, that's stupid. Of course, then you hurt him again, right? <laughs> How can I be culpable for this? But I am. You ever find yourself speeding in your car and you don't know you are? No. I, I didn't think. There, we have a couple of our perfect gentlemen here. So glad they're with us this morning. You know, you're driving along. You're listening, oh, I don't know, to the Bridge Worship t- CD, and you're so into it, you know. This is just the best. And, and, and you're, you don't realize you're doing 75 and a 35, okay? You just, you know, you get used to the speed, and you're cruising along, and, and the lights start flashing behind you. And, and, and the officer comes to the door. Oh, officer, I didn't know. I mean, I didn't mean to. I mean, I really, I didn't realize. Listen to this worship team. I mean, how can you not be speeding when... It's funny how when we realize that we've been doing wrong, that we didn't know we were doing, how almost the first thing we want to do is look for blame. 
It's that pastor in his CD. It was too loud, and, and he was, it was. I could just blame him. Here's his address, <laughs> phone number. When we sin intentionally, we have this tendency to look for someone to blame. And so God gave Israel the scapegoat. Scapegoat. We even use that word. Don't scapegoat me, man. It's your fault. On Yom Kippur, two goats were presented before the Lord as part of Israel's sin offering. Both goats were the sin offering. One goat was sacrificed. The other was called the scapegoat. Webster's Dictionary defines a scapegoat as one that bears the blame for others, one that is the object of irrational hostility. And every year, the people would watch as once the one goat was sacrificed, as the scapegoat was brought before the high priest, and he laid his hands on the head of the scapegoat and literally transferred vicariously the blame of the people's sins onto this goat. Leviticus 16.22 says, The goat shall bear on itself, and there's that word, Nasah. He shall bear on himself all their iniquities, to a solitary land. And so the Lord saw fit. He gave a picture of what Jesus was going to do, of what His Messiah would do as He bore our iniquities and carried our pains Himself, that the scapegoat, hands on the head, all of our blame, the blame of Israel, is now transferred to you, this goat. And the goat then would be driven out. Poor little goat. What? What? What did the goat do to deserve that? What did Jesus do? Poor Savior. He was perfect. Get the picture? People wondered the same thing about Jesus that perhaps was wondered about the scapegoat. What did this goat do to deserve this? What did He do? Looking up to Jesus on the cross... How does he deserve what's happening to him right now? He didn't do anything to deserve it at all. On the other hand, I don't even know all the things I've done to deserve it. But someone's got to bear the punishment and the blame. So at the cross, the humiliated God-man bore our sin sickness, our disease of sin. Pointing the finger of blame. When we realize we've sinned, and Satan loves to do it, Satan is the master finger pointer. Listen, when you find Satan pointing the finger at you, bringing even to your own mind a realization, the sin that you've committed, you point the finger at Jesus. Because He's the scapegoat. He's the one who took the sin. Verse 4 continues on, Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That's how we saw him, Israel says. Many Jews still see it that way today. I told you last week, the Talmud has a Hebrew name for Jesus, Nagua. Nagua means the leprous one. We look at him that way. We see him that way. Or, as it's translated here in verse 4, stricken. Nagua means leprous. It also means stricken. That's the same word. We esteemed Him as the stricken one. But gang, here comes the astounding revelation of the prophet Isaiah himself in verse 5. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging, we are healed. We thought, he says, as Israel, we thought He was stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. Turns out... His suffering and His humiliation was self-imposed rather than self-deserved. He's the one who took this. Four things happened that He mentions right here in this verse. First of all, He was pierced through for our transgressions. Pierced through. The Hebrew word halal, to bore through. Literally describing or indicating what happened to Jesus as the nails went through His hands and His feet. To bore through. John 19.17, they took Jesus and He went out bearing His own cross to the place called a place of the skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha. And there they crucified Him and with two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Now, the earliest record that we have of crucifixion taking place was done by Darius, 
of the leading the Persians in 519 BC, where 3,000 were crucified. Where this practice was employed. I don't know whose idea it was originally, but I can tell you this, Isaiah described it perfectly 150 years before we have any historical record of it ever happening. And even beyond that, it would be further, it wasn't until 175 BC that it was introduced in the region of Judea by Antiochus Epiphanes. Some of you, if you studied Daniel, you may be familiar with that name. Antiochus the Greek who came down and employed crucifixion for the first time in the region. But the point is, Isaiah chose a word that is both precise and predictive. Before anyone knew what this was, he was describing it. To read it before it happened, you'd have to say pierced. What, like by a spear or someone driving through with a knife or a sword? How would that exactly work? Zechariah does the same predictive thing, but he looks ahead to the second coming of Jesus and says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Zechariah 12.10 So he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Having a conversation with my son Hayden, and Hayden and I were talking about sin and, and about Jesus. And, and Hayden made the comment, he said, you know, Jesus took so much on Himself, I hate the thought that I put more on Him. You know, That, by the way, was what was behind the words, it should have been my cross, the song that we sing. And Hayden wrote those words out of, out of wondering, saying, you know, it should have been me. I should have had... How could, why does Jesus... How, you know? And we began talking about this, that He was crushed for our iniquities. As I was studying, I tweeted this week, <laughs> I have like I, I, 19 followers it's pretty impressive on, on Twitter so as I was studying I, I tweeted this you know what the Hebrew word for crushed means crushed it's perfectly translated he was crushed I want you to think about the word what does it mean that he was crushed exactly what it says it indicates Remember we just read that the word bore means a weight of something, a heavy weight. That weight crushed him. It smashed him. He not only bore the weight of my sin and yours, he was crushed by it. And that's the whole point. That's what we need to understand. If you try to bear the weight of your sins or others, it will crush you. But here's the difference. You won't get up. Jesus did. Not until His resurrection did the world realize how almighty He truly was. Once He hung on the cross, as Joseph of Arimathea would take Him down from the cross, as He was laid in the tomb, as the people wept over His death, all they could say was, this one was crushed. The weight of sin just took Him down. And had He stayed in the tomb, that's all we could ever say. is It it crushed Him. See, this is why I can't take on your sin. This is why I can't solve your problems. Your problems crush me. Some of you know I studied psychology many years ago and, and I, uh, as part of my degree program, had several internships and it just wore me out. Literally wore me out. I, to sit in an office and go through four or five sessions in a day of different people and listening to all of their stuff, I would go home and Cheryl and I were newly married and I would just sit on the couch and go, can we just watch like a comedy or something? I'm just, it's so heavy. And when we try to bear the burdens of our own lives, or of someone else, it will crush us and we'll never get up. But Jesus, though crushed, rose again. Amen. Third thing that happened is the chastening of our well-being fell upon Him. Musar Shlomenu is the Hebrew. The chastening, Musar, of our well-being, Shlomenu. Does Shlomenu sound vaguely familiar? Shlomenu. The chastening of our peace. My peace. He was disciplined. That's Musar. Disciplined for my peace. That I might have peace. Literally, Musar, the word discipline means, or chastening, is the infliction of judicial punishment. The picture drawn up here is you're in the courtroom and the judge finds you guilty and he sentences you. But one in the room stands up and says, I will take the punishment. Throw me in prison, let him, let her go free. It's mine, I'll take it. What was the sentence? What was the disciplinary action? It wasn't just his death, gang. 
Broaden your understanding of the crucifixion. It wasn't just that He died for uh, to take our punishment that we might have peace, but that He was scourged for it. More went on than simply the moment of Jesus' death. Matthew 15.15, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Why? Because scourging was the punishment phase of the crucifixion, which was the final sentence. It's all part of the same thing here. But it wasn't a random Roman act of brutality. The scourging was part of the deal. The chastening by scourging was part of my reconciliation to God. It had to happen as much as the cross did. Colossians 1.19 says, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the, dwell, the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace, shalom, through the blood of of His cross. And so the fourth thing that He describes in verse 5 is by His scourging, we are healed. There is healing that comes not just from the cross, but from the scourging of Jesus Christ. As the blood flowed out of His back and as, as it was torn apart in the scourging, that blood brings a healing power to this world unlike anything that has ever happened before or since. His blood is the healing. Yeah, but, but, but Rick, is it spiritual healing, as in salvation, or is it physical healing, as in the removal of cancer? Which healing are we talking about here? Well, that debate's gone on for years. And there are good believers in Jesus Christ who believe that the healing talked about by His blood at the cross is simply salvation. You're healed, and so no matter what happens in this life, when you die, you're going to be saved. That's, that's what it's talking about. And yet, Matthew indicated physical healing, didn't he? Matthew 8.16, describing the physical healing that was going on there in Capernaum that day, and he says, this fulfills what was talked about in Isaiah 53. He's healing people. By his scourging, we are healed. It's physical healing. Okay, but but Peter wrote, 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins and His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by His wounds you were healed. Dying to sin, living to righteousness, spiritual healing. Matthew says, look at the people who were healed physically. Physical healing. So Rick, which one is it? Both. It's both. Yes, we are spiritually healed by the blood of Jesus shed at the cross. We have complete reconciliation to God the Father through His blood to live forever, to be a healed people, but... Don't miss that the blood of Jesus cleanses and heals physically. There is physical healing that comes through the shedding of His blood. Why am I not healed? How can God... Careful. Ask the right question. What did He do? Who is this God-man? Verse 6 continues on and says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. My friends, the language has just changed here in the Hebrew. The all of us here is all-inclusive. This is no longer Israel speaking alone. All of us speaks of all humanity. The song has shifted direction and we can say with the Jewish people, all of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us have strayed and wandered. That's what sheep do. That's what we do. And that's why John the Baptist said of Jesus, He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That same picture, we're the wandering sheep and so the Lamb was sacrificed for all the wandering sheep. The contraction phase, the things that Jesus took on Himself. The pain, the crushing, the chastening, the scourging. He contracted all of this on Himself that it might be taken from us and that we wouldn't go through it though we fully deserve it. Number four, the conviction phase. The conviction phase. He was oppressed and He was afflicted yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. All of the eyewitness accounts verify this verse exactly. In fact, keep your finger there and turn over, if you will, to Matthew chapter 26. 
Matthew 26. It's a long chapter, all the way back down to verse 59. Matthew 26, 59. Keeping in mind as you turn there, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Matthew 59, uh, sorry, 26, verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward, but later on two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Verse 63. But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see, and he quotes, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of glory. The clouds of heaven. Jesus didn't remain silent. I mean, He just spoke, right? Skip on down to Matthew 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor questioned Him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Now that's all Matthew gives us. If you read the the account in John, you know he says more. He and Pilate have a conversation about truth and about the king and about my kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says. My kingdom was of this world. All my followers, they'd fight. But my kingdom is not from here. And so this conversation ensues. And verse 12 tells us, while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Okay, good. So we're back to that. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now here's the deal. Some might argue the point of Isaiah. That he kept silent. They'd say, no, he didn't. He didn't keep silent. He spoke several words in his trials. He spoke to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. He spoke later to Pilate in that whole king discussion thing. But understand... What Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 53, he did not open his mouth, means he refused to defend himself. He never uttered a word of defense. Do you realize what perfect clarity of mind Jesus had through all of his trials? Even standing before Pilate with his back torn up with thorns on his head and blood dripping down into his eyes, and beaten and brutalized, even in that point, to never misspeak. To never get defensive at all. He never opened his mouth. He offered no resistance. Even in the face of all the false and bogus testimony, well, he said this, well, he said that, he uttered no defense. He would not defend himself. I was thinking about that and I thought, am I a defensive person? How about you? Are you defensive? Someone comes at you, do you find yourself quickly getting your back up? Do you you tend to do that when people challenge you or or when they go after your beliefs? Eh, I don't believe in your Christianity. Oh, well, let's talk about that. (laughs) You know, are you a defensive type of a person? Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.21, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He offered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. Christians, listen. We need to be ready to give answers for the hope to which we've been called. However, we need never be defensive. That doesn't change anyone's mind. You, God doesn't need you to defend the truth. The truth is the truth. What God needs us to do is to tell what's happened, to show who Jesus is. Our best defense is simply to entrust ourselves 
to him who judges righteously. I was sharing uh, with, with Steve and Lisa on Friday. We're having lunch, and, and I shared with them when we first started the bridge how some things have been said about me. You know, and, I, and I'm always curious to hear how fe- people even find out about this church because we've really tried hard to keep it quiet. But um, I wonder, you know, what, what's, what's said out there from time to time? You know, there are people who said, well, it's got to be a cult because they're in a barn. Okay, so I didn't know that was the definition of a cult. But during that year, some things were said about me that were not true. And during that same year, and I've shared this before with some of you, we were studying through Genesis, and I landed at Genesis 15.1, where God says, Abraham, I am your shield, and I am your great reward. And though God spoke those words to Abraham, He spoke it directly to my heart. And way back then, I realized, i got no self-defense I need to worry about. I don't have to prove myself to anybody. People can say whatever they want. The truth is the truth. And God is our defense. And I love how Peter makes the comment, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And that's what you do, brothers and sisters. Entrust yourself to God. You tell the truth and entrust yourself to God and do not defend yourself. Here's the thing. The more you defend yourself, the more defensive a person you'll become. And God does not call us to be on the defensive. In fact, He calls us to be on the offensive with the Gospel. To be taking the gospel out. And not afraid of the word of truth, but bold with it, yet not defending. Lawyers will tell you it's a foolish thing to be your own defense lawyer. Non-believers do it all the time. Non-Christian people will say, I'm a good guy. I'm I'm a good lady. I can make a case for my salvation. I will be my defense attorney. If this whole God thing turns out to be true, I'll defend myself. Okay, books are going to be opened. Books of deeds will be revealed. Evidence will be presented. Let me encourage you. Don't defend yourself. Because you won't be able to do it. The evidence against all of us is far too great. Which is why John said in 1 John 2.1, If anyone sins, we have an advocate, a defense attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is our defense. And yet, and yet the greatest defense lawyer in all eternity, Jesus, refused to defend himself. Though he knew the truth, he wouldn't do it. How completely un-Jewish of him. (laughs) And I say this with the greatest admiration and utmost respect. But gang, the Jewish people do not go gentle into that good night. In fact, borrowing off of the poem by the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And those who have tried to say that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is Israel has not paid a whole lot of attention to Israel in history. Because the Jewish people are completely different than this. He did not open his mouth. He was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb led to slaughter. He didn't open his mouth. He was silent. He didn't defend himself. Let me tell you this about the Jewish people. And again, I say this with great respect. You cannot characterize the Jewish people that way. As a people who refuse to defend themselves. It's the whole purpose of APAC, right? (laughs) The Jewish lobby. The Jewish people have learned to defend themselves in history. Buchsfazen said this. Whatever Israel's virtues are, suffering in silence and submission to her tormentors is not one of them. Whenever the Jewish people were able, they resisted with all their might. Whenever they were unable, they protested vigorously and vociferously against their oppressors. In fact, they never considered suffering in silence to be a virtue. Here's something history doesn't remind us of. During the days of the Holocaust... There wasn't a silent suffering going on. There were Jews outside of Germany, outside of Poland, all over the world who were crying out, Unjustice! Unfair! Don't you know what's going on? There were were people being sent around, ambassadors, calling on the United States, calling on Great Britain, you've got to do something, loudly protesting what was happening during the Holocaust. And it's always been that way. And who can fault or blame a single Jewish person for standing up and saying, I stand for human rights and dignity? Those are very vocal people. And again, they have every right 
to be. And it is not a virtue in Jewish thinking to be a silent sufferer. So was the suffering servant here just pathetic? Not in the least. I said this was the conviction phase. Listen, his conviction to death was because of his conviction to die. He had the conviction. He was convicted in and of his own heart before Pilate ever spoke a word, before the Sanhedrin ever dragged him before the Roman procurator. He was convicted. He knew he had to die. Think about this. Jesus had numerous ways out, didn't He? He could have opened His mouth and called for 12 legions of angels. And the whole thing would have been over real quick. But He didn't. Why? Because He was absolutely bent and determined to go to the cross. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7. Previous servant song tells us, The Lord God helped me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be ashamed. He was bent and determined, convicted to go straight to the cross. That's why he was nailed up. And not because of the actions of any man. I love the Gospel of John because it makes it so clear. You read through the whole crucifixion story of Jesus and you see very clearly who's in charge the whole time. It was Jesus. Convicted to go to the cross. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Literally, and, and catch this, because it goes to the precision of the prophecy. Literally here the words mean from prison and judgment he was removed. From prison and judgment he was removed. And it tracks with history. After the dark night of the trials, from the pit of Caiaphas' home to the praetorium, uh, to Pilate himself, then he was released from prison and removed to the cross to be killed. We go step by step through the crucifixion story in Isaiah 53. And it continues saying, As for his generation, who considered? The word there literally cared. Who cared? That he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. The word cut off. Daniel, the prophet, said the same thing. Daniel 9.26, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The word cut off means killed. He was killed. Who cared that he was killed for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? I remind you, this is not an historical account we're reading. This is prophecy. But it reads historically. It reads as though written by the eyewitness testimony of one who watched Jesus go through the trials, stood before the cross, saw the crucifixion, the whole thing, and went back and wrote about it. Now, from God's perspective, history and prophecy are the same thing. He sees it all at once. So when He tells us something that is going to happen from our perspective, He's already seen it. But from the human perspective, the accuracy of these words is absolutely stunning. Verse 9, His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet He was with a rich man in His death, because He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in His mouth. Technically, what should have happened is Jesus' body should have been dumped in an unmarked grave along with the two criminals that He was crucified beside. That's what they would do. Crucify them, take the bodies down, dump them. Bury him, no one would really ever know where until perhaps centuries later bones were discovered or dug up. That's what should have happened. He should have. That's why it says his grave was assigned with wicked men. The assignment of Jesus' burial would have been with the two criminals. That's what should have happened. That's not what happened. Yet, he was with a rich man in his death. Matthew 27:57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And it shouldn't have happened. No one could have planned for that. Who knew Joseph was going to ask for the body? Who knew this rich man was going to have the guts to go to Pilate and say, can I have the body of a crucified criminal? Would that be okay with you? 
And why the special treatment? Because Jesus, unlike any crucified man or woman before or after, Jesus was completely innocent. Which is something that can be said of no one. Save Him. This brings us to the final and future phase of the song. The culmination phase. Number five, the culmination phase. Verse 10. But the Lord was pleased, literally bent, or desired to crush Him, putting Him to grief if He would render Himself as a guilt offering. Remember we saw earlier how Jesus bears the weight of sin. Nasa, He bore that weight. Even of our unintentional sin. And here's how He did it. He became, think Hebrew, He became the guilt offering. The guilt offering. The sin offering. Talked about in the book of Leviticus. The Hebrew word for it is the asham. Unlike all the other sacrifices, the asham, the guilt offering, it made a person right with God. Leviticus 5.15 says if a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally, there it is, our unintentional sin, we didn't know. If we do this against the Lord's holy things, He shall bring His asham, His guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock. And so three things culminate here in this final awesome section of the servant's song. He says He will see offspring He will prolong His days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in His hand. What does that mean? He will see His offspring and prolong days. Gang, that is the culmination of resurrection. Resurrection is being described and talked about here. He's going to see offspring. How's He going to see offspring? He's dead. Right? He's going to prolong His days. Huh? What, on the cross? No. Going through the crucifixion, the prophecy is because of the crucifixion, because of His willingness, His obedience, His conviction to die for our sins, He's going to see offspring. He's going to prolong His days, the culmination of resurrection. Revelation 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. You Bible students know this, but, but what is the first resurrection? The first resurrection is a resurrection to eternal life and it began first with Jesus. He was the first of the first resurrection. And the first resurrection continues all the way along. It's passed along to His offspring, anyone who is born again. Born again by faith in Jesus. The offspring of Jesus all the way along throughout time. First resurrection began with Jesus. The first resurrection is still continuing. It's still including people to this day. You know what it's going to look like? The dead in Christ are going to rise. And then we who are alive, we will rise with them and meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord. That's the culmination of the first resurrection right there. From Jesus to the rapture is the first resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That is, in Christ. Note that. In Christ, all will be made alive. Which means you've got to be in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're not going to be made alive. This is not universal salvation. It is what we said Wednesday night. Universal invitation. All are invited to come. Anyone is invited. There is no exclusivity. It is all inclusive. The call of Jesus, come and have faith in Me. And trust in Me. And you will be part of this resurrection. But Paul writes, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, First one. And after that, those who are Christ's at His coming. You know, it's interesting, the parallel prophecy to Isaiah 53, the other great epic pinnacle in the Hebrew Scriptures would be Psalm 22. Which Psalm 22 also describes very specifically the crucifixion of Jesus. How does Psalm 22 end? Verse 30 of Psalm 22 says, Posterity will serve Him and it will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. He'll see His offspring. His posterity. This is great. Do you know Jesus didn't have to wait long? To see His offspring, something happened. Jesus was able to see His offspring, listen, while still on the cross. What are you talking about, Rick? 
Do you know who I'm talking about? Luke 23.42 He was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus saw the first of His offspring on the cross before He died. What an encouragement. What a remarkable moment. For Jesus to hear, and the Bible's clear, both thieves were casting insults on Jesus at the beginning. Later, Luke is the one who tells us one of the thieves began to realize what was going on and called out to the other thief, how can we do this? Knock it off. This guy's innocent. And he looks at him and faith has entered his heart. This thief, this criminal on the cross, faith comes in and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus says, today. Today you will be with me in paradise. And he saw the beginnings of his offspring right there. What an amazing thing. The culmination of resurrection. Number two, the culmination of satisfaction. The second thing we see in this final phase, the culmination of satisfaction. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. The culmination. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us, For the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Beginning with that thief, and looking straight on through the cross, He was satisfied. It's not the Lord was satisfied. Now, now God's righteous requirements were satisfied on the cross, but Jesus Himself was satisfied in what He was doing. The servant was satisfied. As all this came together, he looked right through the shame and the sorrow and the grief and the pain of the cross and he saw joy and satisfaction beyond. Finally, verse 12, Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Number five or number three of the fifth phase, the culmination of exaltation. Jesus exalted. For the first time in this song of the sorrowful servant, going all the way back to the first verse, so I guess for the second time, because it tells us in verse 13 of chapter 52, my servant will prosper, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, and then it's just downhill from there until you get to verse 12. And we see the exaltation happening. What we learn, gang, from this suffering servant runs completely against the conventional wisdom of humanity's attempts at greatness. The way we think that someone becomes great. The way we think that someone is promoted, that their reputation expands, that they become well-known, is not the way it is. Franz Delich wrote, The servant of Jehovah goes through shame to glory. He goes through death to life. He conquers when he yields. He rules after being enslaved. He lives after He has died. He completes His work after He Himself has apparently been cut off. His glory streams upon the dark ground of the deepest humiliations. That's where greatness lies. That's exaltation through humiliation. Remember Bonhoeffer's question. It is no longer how can God be the humiliated man. It is who is the humiliated God-man. Isaiah 53 makes it absolutely clear. The humiliated God-man is none other than the exalted God-man, Jesus Christ. Let's bow and pray. Lord Jesus, we come before You as one who was both the most humiliated and the most exalted ever to walk the face of this earth. We exalt You this morning, Lord, because You were willing to be humiliated. If not for Your humiliation, Lord, if not for the stripes, if not for the crucifixion, if not for Your sorrows and Your willingness to go through all that, we would be left hopeless and hapless and this morning we would have no direction for our lives. 
But we are here as a people who have great hope. And we worship you in praise and adoration and honor because you are the one who came from exaltation to humiliation and returned exalted once again. May we, as Peter called for, may we see you as the example to follow. Lord, I pray for a willingness among believers here in the barn to be humiliated that you might be exalted. To follow after the pattern of our Lord Jesus, the true suffering servant. May we be willing to suffer and to serve that others might be saved. In Jesus' name, Amen.